0: Hello and uh, welcome to Unequal Rajshekar and thanks a lot for agreeing to do this despite being hard pressed for time. It's been almost three weeks since the US-based short seller, Hindenburg Research published a report that made some very serious allegations against the Adani Group. It has lost around 100 billion dollars in market capitalization due to a massive sell-off since then. It decided to return $2.5 billion. It raced through an FPO. The group has had to re- repay a $1.1 billion loan. Uh, the French energy giant Total Energies has put a $4 billion project on hold. Moody's has downgraded the outlook on several of the group's companies. What else? not been an auspicious start to the year uh, for the Adani group, has it? It could have been better so it's primarily the hindenburg report which has caused this uh, the right wing ecosystem in india has has said that several of the allegations are not true or that they are overstated even some experts like ashwat damodaran have raised some questions about some of the allegations raised by uh, the hindenburg research what do you make of uh, that how true these, are these allegations um I think Ashwathamadharan said that he could not comment on the
1: ownership structure of these investment funds. Right. And therefore, that he would focus only on the questions around the group valuations and build his critique from there. Right. Uh, if you look at the investment funds, I think that stuff is quite credible on its own. It's very strange to have a, I mean, like Hindenburg has said, as a, morning context set before them, and as Reuters has reported, and as FT has reported, I mean, uh, Hindenburg isn't, uh, isn't the only one to sort of talk about the investment funds. It's kind of strange that multiple funds located in the same address would be putting all their money only into one group, right? With the express outcome of reducing the
0: free float. I would take that part quite seriously as well. And, and <clears throat> this is an allegation, like you said, this is not the first time that this allegation has been ma- made. To this, the Adani group's defense has been that we don't know who the owners of, who who is investing. We don't always know who's investing in our uh, companies. I find that hard to believe.
1: I mean, uh, if if four funds or five
0: funds account for a
1: large chunk of your free float, I would tend to think that, you know, you would have some curiosity about who these guys are. But You will generally keep a very close eye on who is sort of coming in and taking positions in your company, right? It could be a prelude to any kind of financial uh, uh, industrial or rival action, right? It could be uh, I mean what happened with NDTV is uh, an outcome where one firm came and picked up a majority share in the holding company.
0: And that was also one of these same firms, right?
1: In any case, but by and large, if a company holds equity in you, you would Keep a fairly close eye on who owns that company, right? If you look at the history of the Adani Group's expansion, it has been one where it has picked up equity in one of the, uh, let's say, um, uh, investors. And it has used that as a beachhead into the firm and subsequently made a larger If if this is the, uh, let's take the fashionable word, if, if this is the toolkit they have been following, I would not expect them to be entirely ignorant about who holds, Uh, who owns the companies, picking up shares in their own form. So
0: so the allegation uh, is that um, it's the Adani group or the Adani family itself, which which is eventually the owner of several of these firms. Even if that is the case, what is wrong with that? I think we have to go back a little bit. Okay, what exactly
1: is this organization that we're talking about? How does it work? Right. We know that the group has gone on an extraordinary expansion spree. It has embarked on this extraordinary stream despite having a relatively small balance sheet it has not tapped public markets for funds so where has the money come from we know that the money came from debt where did the debt come from um sizably by pledging shares in group companies and floating bonds what you have what the accusation essentially is is that you have hiked the value of the shares and the bonds To such an extent that instead of borrowing, say, $100, you're able to borrow $1,000. And this point has been um, reiterated by a bunch of people who said that given the amount of equity these companies have, or given the size of EBITDA these companies have, the quantum of debt they carry is much larger. So the question comes about mechanics. How is it that this share is operating at such a high multiple? And that is where the free float question comes in. The charge made by Hindenburg, just as the commentary from FD on Adani Green about a year or two ago said, uh, is that there have been multiple transactions which basically serve to push up the price of, say, Adani Green. Once that value is really high, 2,000 rupees or 3,000 rupees, as opposed to, say, 200 or 300 rupees, you pledge that share. And then you sort of borrow against that, and that money is then distributed across your group for, uh, A, uh, funding future expansion. B, given that your businesses are not throwing up a lot of cash, a part of this money is used for sort of financing your own operations, uh, propping up like we have seen loss-making companies and so on and so forth. What is the problem with such an arrangement? I think it simply comes down to this. Um, You are actually taking way more borrowings than what your business can support. And what that creates for you thereafter is an outcome where since Let's say I have a company and the EBITDA of that company is 10 rupees. The loans have taken up 1000 rupees. What it means is that this business will never be able to generate the quantum of money and need to retire this loan in its sanctioned term period of seven years or 10 years or whatever. I will need to borrow again, right? So my cash flows are not changing or my cash flows are growing at an organic kind of a base, right? One solar plant becomes two or three. But what is happening above that is... uh, my debt is growing at an entirely different pace, uh, pace because all the money I'm borrowing is not going only into creating CapEx up. It's being spread all over the group in ways that we don't understand very well. In the past, I've looked at how uh, uh, borrowed money was being used. It was being invested uh-huh. into equity in some cases, being used to proper loss making companies like Adani Power. Some of it is not very... It's not the best use of money. It's not an efficient use of money. There is generally a lot of literature saying that... Uh, Firms which are oligarchic or firms which are close to political power, firms which sustain their competitive advantage not from market-leading excellence as much as, say, political patronage. They don't tend to be very good users of money. Right. So the question is always about the capacity to repay this.
0: But in a sense, the same was true for uh, the Samsungs and the Hyundais of South Korea when uh, when it, it began its industrial expansion. What is the difference between, let's say, a Samsung and an Adani? I'm not sure that is true. I mean, see, there is a lot of this rhetoric around using
1: Adani, saying that Adani is a national champion and that India is trying to reprise the Chebol strategy. I find some of this stuff a little facile. When was it decided that we need a national champion strategy? How was it empirically established? Because these are matters of public policy, right? How was it decided that the model of a national champion is the right approach for a country like India to follow. I haven't seen any white papers or discussions or uh, anything on this question. We've just been told that, look, there's this one firm which is going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting from here on. We also don't know how it was decided that Adami would be the national champion. And then the question comes that therefore, what are the you know, leave aside the frame of politics for a moment. What are the competencies of this group to deliver uh, returns on green hydrogen. And you're telling me that this group can do ports, airports, green hydrogen, defense, missile systems, Apples. edible oil. Right. <clears throat> that, that part surprises me. And also remember that the, the channels became corrupt and oligarchic as time progressed. When you look at Adani, you, what you see is a group which is favored by the government, right, in terms of being pushed into a range of sectors. But you also see a very opaque organization chart. What do you mean by the uh, opaque organization chart? Why does he have uh, close to 600, 600 subsidiaries? Why are so many of these rooted in tax havens? What is the nature of the money flows between those subsidiaries and the listed companies? What is the rationality there? If we are trying to understand, I think what we really need to do is, is, I think forget all the narratives and and conjecture which is floating around and just look at the essential facts about this group. Whether it's a national champion or or not is besides the point. I mean, that is, I think, a label which is being attached in a very lazy manner. There was a report a long time back by Spurbank talking about Gazprom, saying that everybody who criticizes Gazprom as being inefficient is missing the point. Gazprom is working as designed. Its purpose is to funnel a lot of money to a small set of shareholders and business partners, and that's what it's doing. The same question comes in here with Adani. This opaque arrangement of firms, the high frequency of related party transactions, these are not accidental features of the group. They're integral parts of the design, as is the uh, incredible burst of expansion that we see.
0: Right. So that, what that, are that, all of these things together telling us so that is, in a sense, an um, even more serious allegation than what the Hindenburg uh, research has pointed no, out. No, I, I don't know if there's an allegation in this. Um, all I'm saying is that
1: there is genuine merit in looking at all of this a little clinically. Okay, as opposed to, say, fixating on Hindenburg. Hindenburg is telling us about a part of this picture. Aran Bhaskar is telling us another part of this picture uh, with the new biography on Gautama what we want to do is take a relatively clinical look at all this. What does this design tell us? Okay, why this design? Why this arrangement of firms? What purpose does it serve? We already have some of these building blocks, right? There's political proximity. Uh, there's extraordinary expansion. There's expansion rooted on... this extraordinary expansion despite relatively small cash flows. You have, therefore, expansion rooted on high borrowings. High borrowings underpinned by budget shares you have the allegation of shares being inflated and fairly credible allegations those. You put all this together and what is the picture that emerges? I I keep thinking of companies like Enron, which sort of similarly went and sort of, you know, tried to play the game of high stock market cap and high uh, share values and things like that. But even that is not the complete story in this case.
0: So, I mean, some of these questions have been raised in the past as well by Indian journalists, including you. Morning Context has done a lot of work Mm. on this as well. So, uh, what have the Indian regulators been doing? Nothing. They have not probed... I mean, there was this... um, I think SEBI was probing one of these allegations since 2021.
1: Yeah, but it went nowhere. See, the thing is this, right? Um, Reporters are outsiders to any vertical. Right? By the time reporters start noticing that something doesn't add up, it's pretty safe to assume that the people in that... Let's say, stock market or that sector know that something really strange is underway. You've never seen a group grow like this to sort of come up with averages of this kind. And yet, what you have is you have an outcome where all of this pretty much goes unchallenged. I mean, this is how power works, right? Power works by creating the impression that it's unchallengeable. What you have here is exactly that, where people just decided, okay, this guy's too powerful, nothing is going to happen. And uh, all we can do is stay out of his way,
0: or come along for join for the ride. Like Ashwath Amudran also has said that uh, some of the foreign investors now who are saying that uh, how can we trust India? Is our money safe in India? I mean, these allegations have been raised in the past. Why did they not know about them?
1: It's a long time back, I was writing on microfinance uh, just before the great Andhra microfinance implosion, 2010, and the question that bankers had started asking each other by then. Uh, by the middle of that year, but do you think this will continue for two more years? Which is one of those really nice leading questions that you know something is wrong, you're not sure when the house of cards is going to collapse. And here the assumption was that, look, these are all these labels which are getting attached way too lazily to the group, right? They were all being told over five years uh, or so, the last five years, that the group is too big to fail what you're seeing right now is that the group is not too big to fail. You know, so there is a particular
0: laziness in the way we think about this question. But that's being said even right now, that uh, the exposure that the banks have, that the life insurance corporation has, is too much and it's going to affect you know, common... It'll survive. It won't take LIC down. It won't take LIC
1: down, right? They'll have to, maybe they'll have to take a write-off. It's not big enough to fail. Too big to fail. <laughs> so, So, I think... Maybe that is my uh, question right now, about the laziness with which we end up articulating our, uh, the laziness with which we end up creating our framework of frameworks around this ongoing moment. Why is a lazy phrase like national champion accepted so uncritically? It could be seen also as uh, a Rosneft forcing a UCOS to sell out. Right, But no, we are going to call it a national champion and like what Mihir Sharma said, that if Adani did not exist, we would have to invent him. That's a really problematic construct. Because ideally what you would have is uh, one company which is very, very strong in ports. Maybe one company which is very, very strong in, say, thermal power. A third company which is very strong in coal imports. A fourth company which is very strong in hydrogen. A fifth company very strong in polysilicon manufacturing. Right? That creates a far more resilient India Inc. There are multiple firms with multiple sort of uh, value chains of their own, all of whom are helping to sort of grow this economy. As opposed to having concentration risk where one company is in charge of you meeting your uh, decarbonization targets, your hydrogen targets, your polysilicon indigenization targets, your uh, global outreach and ports kind of a target. It makes no sense because when the guy goes down, if the guy goes down, if the guy is unable to deliver, you get hit on each of these. And remember that you don't know a thing about the level of professional management in this company. Hindenburg has spoken about rapid turnover in CFOs. Uh, how deep is a professional management cadre here? Right? If, if you're looking at an organization, you will look at these questions, right? So when the Chai boards were being created or or when Mitty was working with Toshiba and, and Sony and everyone else, they were actually trying to build an industrial capacity. Correct. It wasn't simply a question of sort of, you know, front loading subsidies and saying key uptum karojokarai.
0: And there was also export discipline, which was not there in the picture in India at all.
1: I think there's a particular flippancy to this. So we accept phrases like too big to fail too readily. We accept phrases like national champion way too readily. Uh, we don't question at all, do we need national champions? Why this particular company as a national champion? Why not have multiple national champions? And all of this is keeping the debate around political funding entirely in the back, which is an important piece of this matrix.
0: Talking about uh, the India's, India's economy and the impact that this might have on India's economy. So you think that some of those fears might be overstated?
1: Well, actually, that's a lovely question, right? You want to problematize it.
0: What are the fears
1: for Indian economy?
0: Exactly this that uh, the Adani Group touches everything from airports, ports, uh, grain silos, hydrogen, renewable energy targets, and so. What how, is the risk for the economy? How much of an impact is this going to have on um, on on each on many of these critical projects? So, for 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 example, uh, now at the group's capacity to raise finance is going to be curtailed. Would that mean delays?
1: Okay. so, so some don't be project. so
0: reflexive. Okay, think about
1: it differently. Uh, when the Rockefeller Railroad Trust was broken, was that a net negative or a net positive for the US economy? Same analogy here. Let's say something happens. There's an FT report saying that Adani may have to sell a part of his business to raise money. In the short term, sure. Uh, it might mean that we miss some of our targets on uh, uh, RE energy additions or something of that kind, right? But if it also means that he's not going to participate in the second round of the Solar Pli, it means that another firm gets a chance. So longer term, it could be a net. It would probably be a net positive because it's reversing. It's kind of if he's forced to break up a part of the empire. This is in a sense antitrust movement, right? It is this big overarching uh, conglomerate being broken into smaller parts. That's a good thing. The short-term implication is that if he has a liquidity crisis, he might try and sort of jack up prices in uh, uh, whichever business he can. right? So so you might suddenly find that your user development fees are going up and so on. But the bigger question is really this. It's about how much of your industrial activity or how much of your economic activity you want to concentrate with one group.
0: Many of these projects are like uh, long-term projects. For example, the uh, plan to sell electricity to Bangladesh. What happens to something like that? That's like a 25-year comm- We don't know. We don't know because see, the project has not been completed yet.
1: It is yeah. slipping its timelines. Right. So now the question for you is, if let's say he needs another 2,000 crores to finish that project. And let's assume he has 2,000 crores. Is finishing that project the best use of the 2000 crores right now, or are there more expedient, uh, more remunerative uses of that money? And we don't know the answer to that question because we don't know what the actual returns from each of these
0: businesses are. Right? And so, some, some uh, of the businesses would be more stable than others, Or there would be more cash generating. Yeah. Right, because some of them will be older, they will be depreciated, uh, they've already
1: paid off uh, their fixed cost components and so on, right? So I think that is one question. Where is he going to put his money next? And then the related question is that if he's been reliant on borrowed money to keep the group afloat, and suddenly that borrowed money is
0: coming down, what does it mean? And, and largely, so, the expansion in borrowing in the last couple of years has been outside India. In the last five years. So, would, would that mean that, that they start borrowing more within India? Yeah, but that is one possibility, that they will
1: have to step up borrowing within the country. But there is going to be a lot of scrutiny on that question as well. So, who is going to lend? And if they lend, they will have to lend knowing that they are all being watched. And then the question is that if borrowing from bonds, international bonds is 1.1 lakh crores, can he stump up 1.1 lakh crores from Indian, from domestically within India right now, if he had to replace it? So he will have to arrive, I think more conservatively, he will have to arrive at a new borrowing mix to say that, okay, 1.1 lakh crores is in bonds. There's a particular chunk of it, which is not due right now, so I don't have to worry about it. There's a chunk which is however due and for that, let me see if I can find a foreign replacement, which might be higher cost, or let me find a domestic replacement. We do not know exactly how big this hole in funding is going to be. Because right now the shares are being repriced and the bonds are being repriced.
0: And also in the future, uh, there could be more margin calls like the one uh, that recently came, which would mean that they need even more cash.
1: So he needs cash. So now the same question comes back. So now let's say there's a margin call and therefore he has to set money aside. So will he put money into the margin call or will he put money into uh, finishing down? So um, I think we're firmly in the level of the unknown. Okay. And there are large questions that we don't understand. It's not clear how big, how much money he will have to, stump up to sort of, you know, honor all his commitments. And arising from that, it's not clear how he can raise that quantum of money, even asset sales. Right. A lot of these firms are overvalued. A lot of these firms also operate in sectors where there are very, very few competitors. So if you suddenly bring a power project into the market, who is going to buy it? for you? Tell me one TPP company, which has healthy cash flows apart from NTP. Right. And that is power. Right. And then power has added complications around, will coal be around 10 years later. So anything you sell will sell at a discount. Right. So if yeah. you're talking about quotes, right, let's say you want to sell one quote, that whole sector sits in NCLT right now. So in such a market, who is going to buy? And there is a bigger question there. It could also be that foreign guys come in and buy these assets. Right. And then, then it's a national security level question. Right. Do you want a port moving to foreign hands? Correct. Right. Well, and these are questions that we have to really engage with at some point, right?
0: What is the outlook? So we would see we would are we definitely going to see some asset sell-off from the Adani group? And will we, we see, will we see a less ambitious Adani group in the future?
1: We don't know. I think every possibility is on the cards right now, right? From them stabilizing and carrying on to them finding that they're not able to raise as much cheap money as they were in the past and therefore needing to scale down their ambitions. The catch is that given the structure of the group, which is so dependent on borrowed money, we don't know if they can make the transition to a slower growing organization in the infrastructure sector while having this great overhang of debt. So in that sense, the jury is very much out on whether they can indeed last the transition or not. So this could go any kind of a way. And and for that reason, I would just focus on reporting. Just to sort of understand. I mean, I think what we can say for sure is that we are watching history being made right now. We can definitely say it's a watershed movement in the history of the Adani group. I also wanted to ask you, how does the Indian economy see this? We don't know. We don't know. I mean, it's too early to say. I mean, if he recovers and his uh, hegemony over the economy, conti- over these the sectors continues, it's one kind of an outcome. If, if he's forced into scaling back his growth plans, it's another kind of an outcome. If he's not able to survive this transition at all, it's a third kind of an outcome. Right? Now, right. now the situation even, is very fluid. Even the third outcome is possible. Oh, it's definitely possible. I mean, it's got
0: all these signs of... Uh, like a total meltdown. Everything is possible. It's a very leveraged group. Finally, I also wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about... Um, about the infrastructure, the muscular infrastructure policy that India has been following in the last few years under uh, Narendra Modi. Um, I mean, in a sense that building roads, ports, large infrastructure, expressways has been uh, at the forefront of uh, India's economic uh, policy. Um, What do you think? uh, Is is there a logic behind it? What do you think of that policy itself? And and Adani in the sense has been uh, the spearhead in, in building many of those projects. Is that the, has that been the right policy for India? See,
1: again, I think, I think the question is really about the words we're using muscular infrastructure policy. Adani started 2013 with three ports and thereafter is added about nine. How many of those are greenfield? From what I know, they're all brownfield acquisitions. The ports pre-existed in space and time, right? So what you're seeing right now is um, a process where between divestment, between NCLT and between MA, a lot of assets are changing hands. And there's a large change in ownership of India Inc. that is underway. I'm not sure in how many sectors you're seeing Adani grow. I'm not sure how much of pure greenfield place you're seeing. All right, there are some businesses where he is indeed adding assets. Uh, solar is an example. But if you look at, say, uh, transmission of ports,
0: I truly don't know how much is greenfield they are. But I meant the Indian economy in general. Um, so again, the South Korea example, um, instead of focus or, or even like Bangladesh for the last few years, instead of focusing uh, on manufacturing, it's been sort of a weak link for India's economy for a while. Uh, We are focusing on capital intensive infrastructure projects in the hope that that would lead to economic growth. Is that the right approach? I truly don't know. Look, deep down you're talking to a guy who
1: only wanted to be a rural India guy and a biodiversity guy. Okay. Uh, I wanted to write on Narega. I wanted to write on uh, species trying to stave off extinction and that would have been enough to make me happy. But then you realize that you cannot really write on forest without writing on coal. And you cannot really write on coal without writing on the coal scam. And you cannot write on the coal scam without getting into questions of oligarchy. And you cannot get in write on oligarchy without getting into questions on political funding in this country. And so, I mean, I truly don't have an answer to your question. Um, It stands to reason that the country needs a range of approaches, right? We need the services sector to do well. We need the manufacturing sector to do well. We need the agriculture sector to do well. The question is, where do we have competitive advantage to make sure that either we can export or we can at least be competitive against cheap imports coming into the country, whether it is services or agriculture or manufacturing. And therefore, how do we decide in each of these sectors, what is the most suitable strategy, right? So I was writing on PLI for carbon coffee some months ago. And one criticism of the PLI approach was that instead of trying to reinvent the entire deal of saying that, you know, uh, we will make our own uh, polysilicon, we'll make our own modules, we will make our own solar panels, right? That maybe we would be more competitive focusing on narrower questions like uh, uh, chip design or, or something else, right? That where do you fit in within the global uh, distribution of these value chains? What are the smaller rungs on which you can be an absolute, uh, where you can be an absolutely hegemonic power? I think the days of expecting one company to be globally competitive across the value chain, those days are over. Like they say, right? Intel has something like 1600 suppliers. China has a bunch of companies with world beating scale in just polysilicon. In that sense, I think some of this is very reductionist and simplistic to say that, you know, we are going to build big infrastructure and then economic growth will be taken care of. It isn't that simple. Right. You need a more nuanced frame than this. I mean, um, which we don't see. Which we don't have. I mean, it's all very trite and simplistic. In Gujarat, they did exactly this, uh, saying that, you know, we are going to build the roads and provide the basic infrastructure like power and the people will take care of themselves. What do HDI numbers tell you about Gujarat right now? Uh, Or what does the status of MSMEs in Gujarat tell you about how well this particular plan is working? MSMEs are shutting down from what I see. And some
0: of the HDI numbers are worse than uh, Uttar Pradesh.
1: Yeah, which is quite a remarkable achievement.
0: Right. So it is a
1: question of some of this stuff is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And in that sense, right, I mean, uh, I think a part of me marvels that 70 years after independence, they're still talking in such broad brush, magic bullet kind of answers. We'll do public infrastructure and then growth will follow. Not really. I mean, with... uh, you could do, let's like right now. You know they're building a new highway between uh, uh, Bangalore and Chennai. I'm not sure that new highway, which cuts traveling down time from say six hours to four and a half hours, I'm not sure that is enough to make a bunch of these units along say Hosur globally competitive. They need something else for that. I mean, all of us know these things. Um, there are a set of factors which hold back growth in the manufacturing sector
0: what, we cannot simply
1: say that one what are some of those factors okay just just thinking through the value chain right uh, are the input costs whether it is raw materials power are those globally compatible uh, comparable they might not be right we have steel import duties for example right power we don't know because we have a cross-subsidization model where industry is made to pay a higher rate for power than say residential users or rural users, right? Then you come around and you say that, okay, now let's look at the um, the tax arrangement. Uh, how do these tax slabs compare with what say their rivals have to pay elsewhere? There is a the whole, uh, in, in states like say Punjab, when I was there, there was a real element of political rent extraction, where Politicians are taking 20% of your net profit. That is also eating into your margins, right? And after all this, once you manufacture, um, you're talking about questions around quality. If, if uh, let's say, uh, Italy is massively encouraging its small enterprises in, in terms of R&D. And here we are leaving standalone firms alone to work on R&D. They cannot compete. It's a long chain. It's, it's kind of like saying that the World Bank finds, the World Bank diagnoses underdevelopment such that the solution it has to offer can be used. Here what you have is, is a machine of uh, the ruling elite which diagnoses problem of, problems of uncomparativeness in such a manner that its solution seems like the only correct solution. Here, the solution is that, you know, we need better ports and wider highways. Uh, the list of problems actually runs way deeper. So the way you di- defining where the problem is, is also a fairly uh, subjective call.
0: So uh, my final question is that um, in, in all of this, uh, what do you see the role of journalism and journalists uh, especially relating, I mean, for example, uh, we have seen reporters in India uh, raise some, of, the, I mean, have reported on some of these issues with the Hindenburg uh, uh, report, the allegations with the Hindenburg report makes, but um, I mean, they haven't really been noticed, they haven't been followed up on enough and um, even the Hindenburg report, do you see enough follow up? What does that say for the state of uh, journalism in India? There have been several lawsuits filed by the Adani group against several journalists across the board, right? I find some of it very funny. I find the state of affairs very funny. I mean,
1: just think about it, right? Let's move away from the immediate heat and dust of all this rubbish. So there was this uh, book uh, called The Watchdog That Did Not Bark, which was on how the American financial media failed to spot the subprime crisis. And what the book says is that journalism, for journalism to be effective, the institutions have to take action. What you have here is, I think most of the relevant facts were in the public domain already. So uh, the press did its job in that sense, but the institutions didn't pick it up. Uh, The institutions didn't pick it up for whichever reason, like regulatory capture or whatever. But the result of that has been that the company's shares got overvalued. Uh, the process of overvaluation went unchecked. But it also created the room for a short seller to come in. So there is a corrective that you're seeing today. But it's coming from the market. Systematically, what happened also is that the press was robbed of the capacity to make sense of these issues and write on them. Right? You, you sort of pushed them into financial precarity you soon find that these articles are just not getting done at all. That leaves the Adani group feeling invulnerable. And and you sort of see the kind of tone that they ended up taking with Hindenburg as well. If, If they had been fielding these questions over time from reporters, they would have had better experience of handling an issue like this too is what I would think in terms of the tone of their delivery. I think there was a systemic failure and the chickens are now coming home to roost for everyone right now. We are now in a place where,
0: see, whether we fomented it or not, the correction has taken place. So you're saying that in, 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 in a sense, if institutions had been working, then um, this rise itself would, not have, would have been checked earlier.
1: It would have been checked earlier. Um, maybe it wouldn't have been as big a problem as it is today on the brighter side, it would have been an even bigger problem another five years later. So I don't think uh, the world tolerates very large asymmetries or very large spaces for arbitrage. Somebody or the other comes in. So in that sense, trying to sort of take the shortcut route has actually boomeranged really badly for the group.
0: Okay Rashekar, thanks a lot for doing this. It was a great learning from you, uh, very informative. and all the best uh, for your reporting.